We're going to get into God's Word today, and I hope you are excited about that more than anything, uh, to just get into His Word and to uh, immerse ourselves in that. It's such an important message. Um, there's such a divide in the church today, and um, we're going to address some of this. So let's start reading. Chapter 9 of Mark, verse 38. Now John answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, Do not forbid him, for no one can work a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better that you enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Verse 45. And if your foot causes you to sin, Cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire where... That's right. Their worm does not die, and their fire is not quenched. For everyone will be seasoned with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves, and have peace with one another. And Father in heaven, We wear the title Christian. Which means that we are those that identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior. But not just the death, burial, and resurrection, the life, death, burial, and resurrection. To continue the work, to be the hands and feet. But to be the hands and feet, we first need the heart. So bless us and teach us today, God. In Jesus' name, amen. January 19th, 1995, a stand-up comedian, basically, in his TV show, calls out the entire nation. 
Jerry Seinfeld did an episode of his show called The Label Maker. Are any of you familiar with it? See, in the episode, Jerry gets a gift from a friend. And that gift that he gets from a friend is a label maker. And he recognizes the label maker because a while back, it was the gift he gave to the friend. And so it has become classically known as the regifting episode. The regifting episode. Now, let me ask you something. When we say regifting, what we're saying is uh, somebody gave you something probably brand new, and you decided, well, I already have one, and you didn't want to hurt their feelings, or you didn't want it, or you knew you would never use it. And so what you did was one day when you were in the pinch for a gift, you said, you know what, let me just wrap this thing up and give it away. It looks like brand new. Nobody's ever going to know the difference. And so what you did was you wrapped it up and you re-gifted it. Is anybody here, and I'm going to ask you, to identify yourselves. If he called out the whole nation for regifting, then I'm going to call out the congregation. If you're here and you have ever regifted, would you please stand right now? Wow. Okay. Please sit. Okay. So that is regifting. It happened to us a few years ago. I gave my nephew some movie tickets for Christmas. Uh, the stores were closed. I'd forgotten to buy him anything. This is on tape, Nick. If you're listening, sorry about this whole thing. And he came up to me and he was like, you know, Uncle John, he goes, these are the tickets that Mom gave you a couple of years ago, and you never used them. Yeah, that's exactly right. So this is called re-gifting, and that is when you take something that has been given to you, and you give it back. You re-present it. Represent it. You re-gift it. You represent it. You're putting it before someone again. Now, when we think of this, we could be we could call it re-gifting. We could call it re-presenting. But now there's a word that we think of in the English language, it's called representing. To put before someone again. And when we think of our politicians, what are they called? They're called representatives. Right? In other words, you choose them so that they can represent your viewpoint. They can take the viewpoint that you have, that we have, and that they can bring before the world and they can honestly represent you. When a popular company chooses an athlete to be their representative, Okay, well, they're picking this person so that they can present their product before the world again. And as Christians, we are ambassadors. We are representatives. We are representing Christ into this world. It's interesting because when we think of representatives representing I think when you think of politics or when you think of celebrity, you could think, well, this person was the perfect person to choose to represent this product. But there are oftentimes when somebody that's representing a product, well, they take a bad turn, they get themselves in trouble, well, they're no longer representing us. We don't want to associate ourselves with them. Let me ask you, Billy Graham, good representative of Christianity, bad representative? Most of us would say, in accord, good representative of Christianity. But lately, one TV pastor said that he couldn't fly on public airplanes because he was flying with demons. You guys, us. Okay, he couldn't fly on a public airplane because he's flying with demons, and so he couldn't get done 65% of the work that he needed to get done. And so, yeah, let's call him out. It's Ken Copeland. Sorry about that. Uh, yeah, we'll call him out. 
So somebody like that is saying, okay, well, listen, I can't represent Christ unless I have this $65 million check. What? Now listen, we can take a look and we can say good representatives, bad representatives. Um, but here's the thing. What we're called to do as the church is we're called to be representing Christ to the world. Now, Jesus said something interesting when he healed a blind man in John 9, verse 5. He says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Right? John 9, 5, Jesus says, as long as I'm here, I'm the light of the world. But Matthew 5 says something interesting. All right? I'm putting my light in you, so let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and see me. Because of you. Because you are representing me. You're representatives of me. And so let me ask you how you represent. Because that's the title of our message today. Represent. How are we representing Christ in this world today? It's cliche, I know, but just go with me on it. If you're the only Bible somebody reads, then how's their reading? By looking at you on a day-to-day -day basis in the line at Walmart. Uh... <laughs> Driving into the church parking lot today. You know, <laughs> how is their reading when they're taking a look at how we're reacting, how we're responding? And so today we're going to talk about representing. We have five quick points that we're going to take a look at as we break this passage apart. Starting at verse 35. And let me ask you, isn't it an honor and a privilege? Do we think of it like this? It's an honor and a privilege to know that God gave us his Holy Spirit so that we can continue to be his hands and feet in this world. You were chosen for this, for a moment such as this, to represent him out there. That's amazing. That alone, we, we can take that one piece of information, leave here today saying, wow, me. But God, my pastor, no, you. Oh God, the way I responded, I, no, you. You go be my representative. How are you representing? Verse 38, it says, Now John answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, Oh, do not forbid him. For no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterward speak evil of me. For he who is not against us, and this is key, for he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say, he will by no means lose his reward. And so the first thing that we see here is the problem that the disciples have. What's their problem? They're going out there and they see a man that is casting out demons, and he's doing it in the name of Jesus, and obviously the demons are being cast out. It doesn't tell us contrary in Scripture. And the disciples have a problem with it. But when I see this, and perhaps you'd agree, maybe the disciples should have a different problem. You see, it was just a few verses ago when they were trying to cast out a demon from this boy, and they didn't, and Jesus said, Oh, 
you faithless and perverse generation. And he calls them out because of their powerlessness and their faithlessness. So let me ask you something. Should we want to be one of the disciples? And well, because we're following Jesus, we're one of the disciples. We should have the power. Or should we want to be this guy who with childlike faith is casting out a demon, doing it in the name of Jesus, and they bring this to Jesus because it baffles them. I don't get this, Jesus. If he's not doing things the way that we do them, then he's got to be wrong. He's using your name. He's going out there and he's representing, but he's not following us. And you have to think that there might have been sometimes, and I believe that he said this to me sometimes because of my responses, that Jesus would say, Knuckleheads. Come on. What is wrong with you? And this is how Jesus corrects them. He says, verse 39, don't forbid him. Don't you do that? No one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For who is not against us is on our side. And it brings us to the first of five points that if we're going to represent Christ well, the very first thing that we're going to take a look at is unity. Unity. If he's not against us, he's for us. Whoever's for us is not against us. And there's this very important principle that is emphasized over and over and over again in Scripture. And yet we take things that are non-essentials, we major in the minors, and what happens is we allow it to cause division in us when he has called for unity. Listen, even in his prayer in the book of John, and this is called the priestly prayer in John 17, and you don't have to turn there, but I guess I asked you to, so go ahead. Uh, it's John 17. And we'll start reading at verse 20, just so you can see how Jesus is praying here. This is on his way, well on his way to the cross, where he says, I do not pray for these alone, referring to the disciples he just got done praying for, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, uh, i.e., that's you. Uh, so he's praying for you on his way to the cross, and every time I read that, it just kind of boggles my mind, um, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me and the glory which you gave me I have given them that they may be one just as we are one I and them and you and me that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me stop right there there's been a one perfect relationship through all of eternity it is the Father, it is the Son, and it is the Holy Spirit, and they are one. One. That's all they've ever known, is being one together. The Father, Son, Holy Spirit with their different roles, the same in power, the same in glory, but they're one. And what's Jesus' desire? That we be one. And it's the same writer, John, who in the book of 1 John, and there you really don't have to turn, but I do want to read this for you, in his First letter, listen to what he writes. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. 
the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested in us, that which we have seen and heard we declare to you, that you may also have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Stop right there. Are you seeing the through line of the unity that's being called for in the Christian life? He didn't stop calling for this unity just because mankind messed it up. This has not become optional. The things that he considers to be essential, and unity is essential. So you're saying, okay, what is going to be our new strategy as we begin New Life Calvary? What's going to be the new strategy? What's going to be the church growth method? You ready for it? Unity. Unity. Uncommon love for one another. Invited into this fellowship with the Father, Son, because of the Holy Spirit in us. Now we're drawn together into unity. And that's what's called for. And when the world sees that, they see something different than what the world has to offer. Listen. If you were to see my wife and I fighting like cats and dogs, we're always fighting, no matter what you see. Are you gonna are you gonna look at that relationship and say, you know what, I want to get married someday? <laughs> yeah, you know what, I, I I I need more conflict in my life, so let me get married. That's not what you're gonna do. But if you see a love relationship, a mutual submission. A Christ-like love and sensitivity and sacrificial love. You take a look at that and you say, man, I want some of that. I want some of that. And in our lives and in our relationships, there should be uncommon love in this church. How's that going for you? Uncommon love, even in a small body. Isn't it hard? Why? Because we're a bunch of sinners. Bunch of sinners that have been brought together. But God says, listen, it's the way that you love one another because I love you. And, and you say, but I struggle with this person. And then God comes back and he says, but I demonstrated my love for you. And that while you were sinning, John, I died for you. So what's your problem with that again? Why can't you be unified? So let me, uh, let me battle with some other things, God. Let me battle with the, if, if it's not their personality, it's the kind of Bible they carry. It should be 1611, it should be King James. And that's all. And anything except that is complete heresy. And you sit there and you battle with that, and, and I just want to ask you, Jesus would be having the same battle that you're having because of the Bible that this person's carrying. Did you see the way they dressed? Oh. Did the church dress like that? What would Jesus wear? Did you know that in their church, they still use hymnals? We shouldn't go back there. They use hymnals. They're so outdated. We need to go to a church where they're using PowerPoint. Calvary Del Rey uses PowerPoint. New Life Calvary, guess what we're going to use? Hymnal. No, no, we're going to use PowerPoint. We're still using PowerPoint. But you get the point. We're not to look at others based off of these things that are considered to be non-essentials when Christ prayed for unity. He prayed for unity in the church, and the disciples are sitting there looking. Well, he's not following us. Well, listen, should he be following you, or should you be following him? Because you couldn't cast out the demons, but he did cast out the demons. 
So now you're taking a look at the other church, and this church, well, they're so excited, they're too excited. Well, maybe you need some more excited, Christian. Well, this church, they're too intellectual, and they're too studied. Maybe you need to be more studied. What's he calling for here? He's calling for unity, and we're going to be unified when we're in him, when the Spirit is in us, when we're getting out of the way. Listen, according to recent studies, there are Baptists, there are Methodists, there are Presbyterians, there are, what do we call ourselves, Calvary chapel Is that? I've heard those called, the, whatever we're called. It says here, the World Christian Encyclopedia, 1982, apparently estimated almost 21,000 denominations, an updated World Christian Encyclopedia in 2011 estimated 33,000 denomination, with denomination defined as an organized Christian group within a country. And let me tell you, every single one of them is doing it right. Listen, in the essentials, there has to be unity. In the non-essentials, there has to be freedom. And in everything, there has to be love. Somebody sent me an interesting article this week by A.W. Tozer. We read a lot of Tozer around here. And, um, and one of the things that Tozer tells, he says, We are told a story that when John Wesley was dying, now if you know John Wesley, you know that the uh, battle between what they call, the church calls Calvinism and Arminianism, it's the typical predestination battle. We are told that when John Wesley was dying, he tried to sing, but his voice was nearly gone. He was almost 90. He had traveled hundreds of thousands of miles on horseback, preaching three or four times daily and founding a great church. He was plainly Arminian in his theology, but as his Christian family and friends gathered around his bed, he was trying to sing the words of an old Calvinistic hymn. I will praise my maker while I have breath, and when my soul is lost in death, Pray shall employ my nobler powers. Now, when he stood before God shortly thereafter, did God say, Listen, you're supposed to be Arminian and you're sort of Calvinistic? I don't think so. Glorifying God, I mean, isn't that what this is supposed to be all about? And in that moment, it's like the hymn that we sing, and again, yes, our theology important, and we are going to get to that, believe me, we're going to get to that today, but again, what we don't want to do is major in the minors, and let what divides us be greater than what unites us, because what a beautiful thing when the world can see different churches coming together and genuinely serving the community and doing it in the name of Jesus Christ, unified. Jesus says, listen, they're not against us, they're on our side. But this raises a problem, doesn't it? Because just because somebody does something in the name of Jesus, does that necessarily mean that they are for him? And does that mean we should accept whatever they do in the name of Jesus? And now we get to our second point, because if representing is a matter of unity, it's also a matter of discernment. You have to have some semblance of discernment in the church. Because just because somebody's doing something doesn't mean they're doing it in the name of Jesus. And we see this in the news all the time. Anybody that watches Law and Order 
or CSI or NCIS or any of these shows, usually if there's a crazy Christian on the show and they're born again, it's no longer the butler did it, it's the born again did it. Isn't it? You can just, nine times out of ten, you can say, well, listen, if there's somebody that's looking a little bug-eyed and claiming that they love Jesus, then they're probably the one that slaughtered a group of people. And that's, unfortunately, where discernment comes in. Necessarily where discernment comes in. Because just because somebody use, uses Jesus' name doesn't necessarily mean that they're acting on his behalf. Let's turn to Acts 19, it's verse 11. And we read here, it says, Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. This just must have been an amazing time in the church. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, you got to love this. If you've ever had an itinerant professor or something like that, an itinerant Jewish exorcist, so what do you do for a living? I'm an IGE. I'm an IJE. I'm an itinerant Jewish exorcist. Took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Do you see a problem with that already? We exorcise you by the name of Jesus that Paul preaches. That's a problem. And they get called out on it. Look at it. Verse 14. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish priest who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Okay, this should be a very scary moment. Okay? You're messing in the world of demons. Okay, and now you go, okay, well, in the name of Jesus that Paul preaches, and the demons look to you and they say, okay, we know Jesus, we know Paul, but who are you? And at that moment, if you're one of these guys that's the moment that you start going, okay, very good. Sorry about that whole thing, a little misunderstanding. And it says here that in verse 16, then the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt on them, overpowered them, prevailed against them, so they fled out of the house naked and wounded. These guys got the absolute snot kicked out of them, okay? Because here they were, they were claiming to know Jesus, and they're saying, okay, well, the Jesus that Paul preaches, but here's the thing. And this is the thing that's really important. The discernment for us is that the Bible tells us in 1 John 4 that we should discern the spirits. Because there are all sorts of spirits that are doing work out there. And we have to be a discerner. How, how do you become a discerner of the spirit? You stay in the word. You stay in relationship. And let me tell you something. It's not going to be me saying, listen, in the name of the Jesus who Anthony preaches, if I'm saying that, then I'm not in relationship myself. It needs to be in the name of Jesus Christ, under the power and the authority of the one who went to the cross that overcame hell and death. And so when we take a look at what someone's doing, we are to exercise discernment. And the more that we're in Scripture, the more we're in that relationship, the more you're going to be able to say, that's from God, that's like totally not. Here's a little litmus test you can use. Five simple questions that came up with as we were preparing you can run a filter through to see if it's something that is, if it's from the Spirit of God or if it's not. The first question is this, is what is being done 
and said, glorifying man or God? That's the first question. So is what is being done or said glorifying man or God? Here's the second question. Is sin and, and the cross of Christ being taught? If not, you can hold up your Bible and say you're a Christian all you want, but if you're not teaching sin and you're not teaching the cross, you're not teaching the need for a Savior, so you're teaching another gospel. And that brings us to the third question that you can run your, into your little litmus test here. It says, does it correct the message of God? Does it corrupt the message? Because anything that does not identify as Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to get to heaven is something that is other than the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it corrupts it. Question four, is it being said or done for personal gain or kingdom advancement? And question five is the simple one, and all should really fall under this. Is it a bride builder or a bride breaker? Whatever is being said and done, is it something that's building the church or breaking down the church? Whatever it is that's happening. Do these questions make sense? If we're going to take a look and we're going to try to discern, well, what is from the Holy Spirit and what is not the Spirit of God? Many years ago, my wife and I, we were driving in the car on the way home from a Christian camp. And we were driving this girl home, she was in the back seat. And she woke up and she was like, the Holy Spirit just woke me up. I'm like, okay. She goes, you all were talking about me. I'm like, well, no, we weren't. She's like, yes, you were. I said, no, we weren't. She goes, well, the Holy Spirit just told me that. And I'm like, well, well, you're not hearing from the right spirit. And she said, well, she said that you were talking about my sexuality. The Holy Spirit said that. And I was like, listen, I said, we were talking about uh, the rope swing that we just went off of at the to Christian camp. We were so excited about some of the stuff. I said, but we were not talking about that. And she was like, well, the Spirit told me to. And at that moment, I had to look at her and with love and in all honesty and say, there are a lot of spirits out there. And we are told to be discerners of the Spirit. And you can't have that because the Holy Spirit is inside of you. The Holy Spirit is never confused about the things that you're confused about. This is so important. We're promised wisdom. And in being promised wisdom in James 1, 5, and 6, what we've been given already is the Holy Spirit inside of us. And again... He is never confused. Now, what we have to do in discernment is to not just anything goes in the name of Jesus. Does it line up with the word? Remember one thing, that in Revelation 2 and 3, Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, Jesus gives an assessment of seven churches. Here's what they're doing right. Here's what they're doing wrong. Oh, Jesus is being so critical. No. It's his church. It's his bride. He died for it. It's his word. The word forms the church. The church doesn't change the word. That's truth. And so if it doesn't measure up to this, then it shouldn't be done in the church. So that's just a matter of discernment. And so if Jesus says, listen, if they are not against us, then they're for us, then Jesus is right. Correct? Jesus is right. So representing is a matter of unity. Yes, it is also a matter of discernment. But check this one out. Representing is also a matter of consistency. And how do you get that from this? I'm glad you asked. Because it says here, back in John, I'm um, sorry, back in Mark, it says here that the man was casting out demons, performing the action 
in his name. So his words and his actions were lined up, and there was consistency in word and action. And we're going to represent him well when there's consistency in our words and our actions. Now, I was thinking about this this week as I read this. How often have you heard somebody say something, but then turn around and say something else that was completely contradictory? Do you trust that person? Do you follow that person? Listen, as a maitre d' at Carmine's, I was known at the busiest restaurant in New York for talking out of both sides of my mouth. Okay? So in other words, it would look like this. I'd have a line of people for a three-hour wait going out the door. And they would say, okay, well, sir, we've waited patiently. Oh, I know you've waited patiently. Get this person away from me. i go to my boss. They were, they'd be sitting right next to me. And I was able to do it. And my boss was like, how do you do that? How do you do that? You smile at them and you do this, and you just get them away from you. Take them over to table 42, please, before I have a nervous breakdown. Thank you. All right, and so I would be talking out of both sides of my mouth, but how many of you have heard somebody profess one thing, turn around and profess something else? Oh, I trust God, but I'm really struggling with this, 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 and this. But I'm trusting God fully. The words are not consistent. Now, what about when somebody's words and actions are not consistent? Okay, I'm saying... I love you to this person, but my actions toward this person are far from loving. So the words have to be consistent with words if we're going to represent. The words have to be consistent with actions if we're going to represent. And both, listen, have to be consistent with your confession, what you claim to believe, if there's to be any power in your walk. James 3.10 says this, out of the same mouth proceeds blessings and curses. My dear brothers, this, 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 this shouldn't be. It shouldn't be like this. You know, in one breath you're blessing all of God's creation and you're singing how great is our God. And in the next breath you're saying something to, to tear somebody else down. And this is not consistent. He says here in the passage, he says, listen, he who's not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. And as we're looking at that, we say, listen, something simple. You're going to get rewarded for if your action is consistent with your words. Okay, here's a cup of cold water. And boy, this is from Jesus because Jesus loves you. And that kind of thing, the Bible tells us, is going to get reward. You see, salvation is free. It's by grace through faith that you've been saved. It's the gift of God, so no man can boast about it. By grace. Get to heaven because of what Jesus did on the cross, repenting of your sins and accepting that. But there's also this little thing that Revelation talks about, and 1 Corinthians talks about it often, called the judgment seat of Christ, where what you do is going to be weighed and your motives are going to be tested for why you were doing what you were doing and when there's consistency, you're not going to lose your reward. This has nothing to do with losing your salvation. Please understand that. It has nothing to do with that. You have to read it. You have to understand where the rewards come from. We get rewards based off of what we did and why we did it with what God gave us. And so how's the consistency right now? These are great challenges that we're going to represent. Are we letting things that need not to divide us divide us? Are we exercising discernment? Are we being consistent? 
When people look at how we talk and what we put on Facebook, I mean, Facebook is just like, Facebook is, is, is nuts. You have one person in one post saying, praise God from whom all blessings flow, God is so good, and then bleepity bleep bleep my ex-girlfriend in the next post, and, what, and it's like, wow, what is this? You think the message would lose its power? You think we might not be representing right? We want to represent him well. And that has a lot to do with consistency. But once the motive is tested, and this is where we get into some challenging scripture, if you're ready. It's chapter 9, verse... I'm going to take a seat for this one. It's chapter 9, verse 42. It says, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands and go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. Where worms, uh, their, their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed or lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell and the fire shall never be quenched where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, Pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire where the airborne does not die and the fire is not quenched. Stop right there. We're going to represent the church is called to purity. This is not taught a lot in the church today, but the church is called to it to be holy as I'm holy because God has given his Holy Spirit to you. Now consider this, the simplicity of what we just talked about, right? If somebody gives someone simple as a cup of cold water in my name, and in one of the other passages, again, Jesus is kind of referring to the children. Oh, if you give one of these little ones a, a cup of cold water in my name, you'll by no means lose his reward. But, and Jesus gets very pointed here. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, better if a millstone hung around his neck. What? That's so un-Jesus-like. If one of these ones represents me in the wrong way, it'd be better if a millstone was hung around his neck. Now listen to the severity of this. The severity of this is to say, listen, if there's a little one, and this little one comes to me with childlike faith, and yes, it's referring to the children, but it's also referring to those, the adults, that come with a childlike faith, and you've come believing, and now there's a figure in the church, maybe a leader or somebody that calls themselves Christian, and they could commit an offense against you. They commit an abuse against you. They do something that is so unchristlike that it becomes a stumbling block for you. I'm not going back to church. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that again. Forget it. Jesus addresses the shepherds in the Old Testament, the prophets 
write about the lack of shepherding. And what we see in Scripture with Jesus is that, doesn't it seem to you consistent that the people that Jesus is harshest with are the people that misrepresent him? Especially the ones who call themselves priests or pastors or, or this person or that person, this person that says, well, listen, I'm doing this in the name of Jesus, and you touch a child? No, 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 my friend. It would be better for you if a millstone were hung around your neck. And he's not mincing words here, because when he says this, it says regarding millstones, it says in that day there were two different sizes of millstones. The smaller one was used by a woman to grind a small amount of grain. The larger one was turned by a donkey to grind a larger amount of grain. Which one do you think is going to be the one that is put around their neck? The larger one. Thank you for playing. Absolutely. The larger one is going to be hung around their neck. You say, Pastor, this seems a little heavy. It seems a bit harsh. And I worked myself into this church today through a ton of traffic in the heat to hear this. Yes, you did. Why? Because it's very important. Because again, we're representing Jesus, and the moment we become the stumbling block, may it never be, doesn't mean you're not going to blow it. Doesn't mean you're not going to slip off. What it does mean is this, is that you became a stumbling block for someone to receive the childlike faith and to have that relationship with him. And he brings up certain examples here. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Foot causes you to sin, cut it off. I cause you to sin, pluck it out. There was an early church father who took this passage and another passage in Matthew quite literally, a man named Origen. And he took this passage, and after he read it, he was led, he believed he was led, to castrate himself. And all God's people said, yeah, I was going to say, you say amen for that, and it's like, that's it, okay? So yeah, all God's people said, ouch. Okay, so Origen, Origen castrated himself because of this passage. And because of another one, it's better to make yourself to a eunuch. But it's not about self-mutilation, is it? Because you know this, is that if you lock your right hand off, because that's sinning, you're going to sin with the left. And if you cut that hand off, well, you're going to find another way to sin. And if you cut your, your hands and your feet off and you pluck your eyes out, you still, unfortunately, have these two things working against you. It's your mind and it's your heart. And as long as this is ticking and as long as this is thinking, then we got issues. And we need to be transformed by the word rather than conformed by the things of this world. And so the penalty is harsh, but it also says here, there, worm does not die and fire is not quenched. Can anybody think of another place that we see a worm mentioned in Scripture that's pretty significant? Story of Jonah. Right? At the end of the story, God sends like this little plant, and he sends this like little plant to give Jonah shade and the scorching sun, and then this worm, this little tormenting worm comes along, and he kind of eats away at the plant so that Jonah's again exposed to the sun. All right, and so these worms, they're just like instruments of torment in some ways. And so we have that here. It's like, okay, this is a place when, when the Bible talks about hell, it's real. It's a place of eternal conscious torment. 
And so what really needs to change here, all right, it's not a matter of self-mutilization of our limbs, it's a matter of transformation of the heart. It's not a matter of lopping off your flesh. It is a matter. Now, there are ways that we can take a look at this. If you remember the movie Fireproof, Kirk Cameron in the movie is a husband, and he's struggling to put his marriage back together, and he's struggling with pornography. Do you remember what he does by the uh, three-quarters of the way through the movie? He takes the computer that he's struggling with, he puts it in the trash, and he hits it with a baseball bat. And you'd say, well, that's a little too far. No, it's not. Listen, if you really understood the great plan that God has for you, something like that would be absolutely no sacrifice at all. It would never be a sacrifice for men not to watch porn. It would never be a sacrifice if you realized the thing that God really had for you. It would never be a sacrifice to say, well, I need this to ease my pain. It would never be a sacrifice, that thing that you're sacrificing, because you realize you truly, you truly in your heart believe that the one who loved you enough to die on a cross has a better plan for your life than you do, but you've been holding it back because you won't get rid of that computer, you won't get rid of that website, you won't have the accountability. And I know I'm speaking to somebody out here today. Because it's a matter of purity if we're going to represent him. It's about dying to the flesh. I received this phenomenal message from somebody that I counseled a while ago. And he sent me this message and he said, man, I share something amazing God brought to me. It says it was from an article online about having freedom from sin. Specifically lust, but the application is for all sin. First Peter 4 1 quotes, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. First Peter 4 1. I've never read anywhere this guy who wrote me in the Bible where it talks about how to overcome sin, and it does talk in the Bible about that. And this says in the very same way, Christ suffered. Put it on your mind also to suffer in the flesh, and then you will stop sinning. To suffer in the flesh for me means that when I am tempted to insert your own sin there, if I say no to my flesh, I'm starving my flesh. And from that desire, and my flesh is suffering. It's not being allowed to eat what it wants, in a sense, and it's actually dying because you're starving it. When I'm armed with this mind, then I'm willing to suffer in the flesh. It's because I have a real hatred for sin. Then I'm going to be finished with that sin. If I've decided I will suffer in the flesh, I will not seek my own, then I won't give into that sin. God will then give me strength. Doesn't that make sense? You're struggling with the flesh. He's talking about putting the flesh to death, and you're saying, oh, I can't do it. He's saying, that's why I'm giving you the Holy Spirit. He said this, he said, I used to think, man, look at how much I love my sin. I can't give it up, or I don't know how. I must be wicked, and I think I'm facing something I can't have freedom from because my heart wants what it wants. Then, boom, God brought up crucifying the flesh, and what that actually meant. Crucifying the flesh. Last couple of verses. Verse 49. 
Mark 9, says, For everyone will be seasoned with fire. Fire is purity. Purification. And every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good. I have that outlined on a little card at home. My wife has Salt is good. But if the salt, listen, loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salted yourselves and have peace with one another. See, if representing is a matter of unity, it's a matter of discernment. It's a matter of consistency. It's a matter of purity. Then the last point is this. The representing is also a matter of productivity. What are people seeing when they look at you? And why aren't they seeing more of the power of God? Because maybe they're not seeing enough of the fruit of His Spirit. We can hinder what God can and will do through you when we're not showing the fruit of the Spirit, when we get in the way of this. Because what the world needs, and you wouldn't disagree with this, the world needs a little bit more salt. Because when you look at the news, it's tasteless. Uncle killing his five-year-old niece, tasteless. When you look at the world, it's just, it should make us go, it's disgusting. So what did God do? Answer to you. So you could give something tasteless taste. So that in the midst of turmoil and tribulation, you represent peace. Peace that surpasses understanding is represented in you. Shining forth in you. And when we start getting out of our own way and there's less of us and there's more of him, then the world is going to see exactly what power they need to see. But if we are living contradictions, and we're sitting there wondering, why don't I feel God? Why am I not experiencing And the first thing to do is check to see, well, what are the things that God calls for as representatives? See if that's part of who we are. I'm going to close you with an illustration of a man named Eric Little. Um, and Eric, if you're familiar with the name, perhaps it's because they made a movie about the Olympic runner called The Chariots of Fire which depicted his run in 1924. In the movie, pressure is exerted by his family for him to give up his passion for running the Olympics and go to the missionary field in China. Now, if you're trying to discern God's will, and you go into one of these seasons where it's like, well, you know what, it seems like a no-brainer. God's not, if he's calling me to the mission field, then he probably would be calling me to the Olympics. But in one of the classic scenes from the movie, He's standing at the top of the hill with his sister that says, you need to be with us. He said, listen, I'll be with you on the mission field. But first I have to do this. Because God made me fast. And when I run, I feel God's pleasure. Because of that, he doesn't yield to the pressure of his family. He goes and he runs in the Olympics. But he's facing the challenge in 1924. 
the heat that he's prepared for, which was the hundred years, they tell him that he has to run on a Sunday. And in this conviction, now he's got the pressure of the leaders of his country who have sponsored him to run in the Olympics, and they're exerting all this pressure, and they're saying, you represent us, and he's saying, no, first I represent him. My conviction says I can't run on a Sunday. And so it's something that happened that was unprecedented. They gave him the opportunity to not run that event, but to run the 400 meter that he had never trained for. And when he ran that event, he won the gold. And when you think of that, when you think of it, like, wow, he made a very tough decision to represent him first. And I just want to ask you if that's a decision that you've made in your life already. Have you resolved to say, listen, I want to represent him, I want to represent him well. I want to represent him, no matter what it all costs. I don't care what my friends say, I don't care what my family says, I don't care what my job says, I'm going to represent him. Because that's why you're here. He wants to develop the character of his son in you, and that will be through all the challenges that you're undergoing. But you have to be, you have the purpose in your heart, as Daniel did, to represent God first. So that's your challenge for today, about representing Let's pray, Father in heaven, before we sing right now, Lord, we just want to thank you. We want to thank you, Lord, that who you set free, we're free indeed. We don't have to battle a war that's already been won. We have to live in it, Lord. And we can experience, even on this planet, even in this fallen sick world, we can experience joy, and we can experience peace and love. All of these good things, Lord. Father, when we get pressed to still show these things um, that the world may take a look at us and see you, your representatives, because you put your light in us, God. And we've been made free. Thank you. In Jesus' name, let's stand.